We want to welcome you to another Worth Knowing More podcast with Hoheimer Wealth Management. Today, we've got a very special guest, Dino Rossi. We're excited to have him here. We're excited to have him talk about all the things that he's been experiencing over the last few years. So, Dino, welcome. Wait, and before he jumps into this, I want to say thanks because I think you just flew back a couple of days ago from from your place in Costa Rica, and now you're already here doing podcasts. So I, I appreciate it a lot. Thank you, Dino. Well, I mean, you guys ask, and I'll, I'll definitely come. Been a friend for a while, so yes. this, uh, this, this, I'd be happy to come and uh, and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Love it. <laughs> All right, so uh, give us a five to seven minute kind of bio. Tell us about you. Well, I actually grew up in Mount Lake Terrace, uh, South Snohomish County. Uh, youngest of seven. Dad was a Seattle public school teacher. Mom was a beautician. And uh, just worked my way through college as a janitor, waxing floors at the Space Needle. Graduated with a degree in business, uh, business management from Seattle University. What year were you at the Space Needle? So I would have been there 80, 81, um, and 82. And it was, uh, it was a great job. I, w- I worked from 2 in the morning till 8 in the morning, first class at 9, and I had Tuesday nights off. And, uh, but I wanted to get through school. I worked three different jobs, worked on a couple other places because I wanted to get, I wanted to graduate from college. And then after I graduated from college, I sold everything I had so I could move to Singapore. Mm-hmm. My brother was a diver, underwater construction off oil rigs in Southeast Asia. But I left 200 bucks in the bank, so I had something to fall back on when I came home. I like it. Nice. You want to come on broke, right? <laughs> You're a planner. <laughs> yeah. So I'm traveling nine months, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. Came home. My other brother gave me a title to a car. He says, if you get this thing started out of my driveway, it is yours. And you had 200 bucks, so you're ready to go. I was ready to go. And that's when I started in the commercial real estate business. Um, answered an ad in the paper. Had no rich family, no rich friends. I. Um, and what year was this? This is 1983. And, and so I started in, in brokerage selling apartment buildings in Seattle, like the old classic brick buildings you see on Queen Anne and Capitol Hill, those, those beautiful buildings. But, you know, in the business, it's, it's no salary, no benefits. You don't work, you don't eat. And, uh, and so you have to close deals. So I kept my janitorial job at night so I could sell apartment buildings during the day. And by, it took me six months to get my first deal, but I had three deals closed on that sixth month. And I made more than my father made in his last year of teaching. Wow. And I reckoned I was rich, which I wasn't. And uh, bottom line was a year and a half later, when I was 25 years old, I bought my first apartment building. And it's the good fortune I had in that business would allowed me to be involved in public service. Uh, There's just no way I could have afforded to do it with a, a wife and at home with four children and a family to support. If I didn't have income, you know, which is the income property that I have, separate from me punching a clock somewhere. I'm the uh, the non-politically correct one. So is it okay for me to ask you how old you are? I want to know what the age bracket is we're talking about here. How old am I right uh-huh. now? 62. Oh, hey, welcome to the 62 Club. Yes. Thank you. Yes, I'm and, 62. And, you, and, and you welcome because you're 62. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Well, we're young. That's nice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good. Okay, now we got a little time perspective yeah. on it. Yeah, and so that's, you know, that's how I got involved in, you know, in, in, in the commercial real estate business. It's a wonderful business. I loved, I loved, I enjoyed brokerage, but the only reason I was in brokerage is so I could buy income property. Nobody in my family ever really owned anything, you know, maybe a house. But I, I remember seeing one of my clients, a guy I sold a little property to, and he was a Boeing machinist. And he bought this duplex, you know, probably 20 years before I met him. Then he bought the six-unit building next door, and then he bought the 12-unit building. He was a Boeing machinist. By the time up in Finney Ridge, he had probably 70 apartment units, and obviously he wasn't a Boeing machinist anymore. And I watched how he could pretty much do anything. He liked to hunt and fish. He liked he could do anything he wanted with his life because he had income separate of him punching a clock somewhere. And I thought, you know, that's what I'd like to do is I want to make sure that I can do whatever I want, you know, which has allowed me to be involved in politics, which I never thought I'd ever do. I mean, I'm, I'm a businessman. I mean, I took one political science class in college. And that's probably one too many. <laughs> At the end of the first week, I hated it and I dropped it. There we go. I told the professor, I grew up poor. I've already checked that box. What do I need this for? <laughs> I thought it was just nonsense. And uh, so I never thought I'd ever be involved in politics. 
Yeah. Before we do that, and I want to talk about your book. Tell me some of your favorite life applications from your book. Well, you know, and a little bit about Chris, your really good friend. He was the one that wrote at the end of the chapters, correct? Yeah, Chris is a friend of mine. He was, he was actually, when I met him, uh, he was a pastor at Oasis Christian Fellowship in Issaquah. Nice. And he helped me in, uh, you know, just volunteering and such with, in my political campaign when I ran for the state Senate out in East King County. And, uh, and so we just became good friends. He's, he's a kind of a national speaker now. And he's putting on very large events. He's one of the, the in, in all over the country, uh, where he'll have you know Dan Bongino come and nice. you know and and um, you know a lot of the people that you'd see on you know, on TV on, 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 on conservative on the radio conser- conservative, conservative radio yeah. conservative TV yep and uh, and sometimes the former president uh, President Trump will be there at these events as well. But he's Chris has uh, you know been a friend for a long time and always. Always on my team. Good. <laughs> but, you know, it, I wrote the book, and the reason I wrote the book is there were a number of things that I, I, I people that passed down to me that I employed, in, especially in, involved in politics, and, but a lot of them I also learned from the commercial real estate business. You know, you think about when you set up, you know, a, a road you're going to go down. If you set up the framework properly, you can't help but be successful yourself. So I learned that from the commercial real estate businesses where I had, I had sellers that wanted to sell their buildings. I had buyers that wanted to buy. And if I could facilitate this and negotiate these things properly, then at the end of the day, I would have a commission. A transaction fee. Right. You know, but it was set up in that way uh, to where uh, if you're successful, um, you'll, be, you'll, you'll be, you know, uh, rewarded. Yeah. So I kind of brought that a little bit into politics, too, because... A lot of times, you know, you get Republicans and Democrats that just won't even talk to each other at, at times, which is just not the way this is supposed to be. Right. And so my first year in the Senate, I, uh, what I did was I employed a lot of those negotiation skills. What I found, what I did in the, in the commercial real estate business, I negotiated multi-million dollar real estate transactions with self-made millionaires and their lawyers on both sides. And I get paid a dime unless I got them to agree. Those skills were in short supply when I hit the state capitol. So I would get in the middle when there was a, a, a problem between the House and the Senate, and I would, I would, you know, get people to stop calling each other names, and then let's, let's, now, what, what do you really want, and what do you really want? And then I'd basically put the deals together. And what I found is once I started helping these things get through the process, everything that I w- was sponsoring and wanted just started flying through because I was building up goodwill, which is why you're three in the Senate, you know, when I got elected to the Senate, I was like 30, I was 37 years old. The average age in the Senate, I think I dropped it to 70 when I got, when I got elected. And so I think they said, let the young guy go do it. He seems yeah. to have a lot of energy. Yeah. And so by year three, I was deputy leader of the Senate and then the head budget writer for the Republicans. And, I, you know, they wanted me to write the budget. And I said, well, I don't claim to be a math whiz, but I can count money just fine. And so I, I found out helping, figuring out how, Within your framework in Olympia, how can I help you be successful? I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, because I'm sure there's something we got to agree on. And so let's figure it out. Everybody down there, I believed, had value, no matter how liberal or how conservative. Every single person had value. It was my job to figure out what we agreed on. Let's go work on that. Nice. That's that's how I was successful down there. But now it's changed because now, unfortunately. both sides see very little value in the other. I mean, it's so extreme. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it nuts. doesn't even make sense. It's hard to put deals together. In fact, they don't put deals together. Now they just start doing things one off and it's, it's, it's terrible actually. So when I, um, so I resigned in 2003 to run for governor. Mm-hmm. And so, but I was reappointed twice to the state Senate once in 2012 to fill out a term. And, and then again, in 2017, when my Senator Andy Hill had passed away, and because there's only two of us Republicans alive, I think, that have actually written the budget. And so I keep getting asked back. But it takes a year out of your life when they, when they ask you to do this. So here's the difference between, say, what I saw in 2003 uh, and 12. The, the difference. Versus 17. Versus 17. Here's the, here's the problem. It's social media. Yeah. yeah. It's, an, it's, it's a, I mean, it can be a real evil. Yeah. And uh, because 
I would I even sponsored bills in 2017 that I'd sponsor in 2003 that I had Democrat co-sponsors with. We just didn't have time to get them through the process. I sponsored the same bill in 2017, and I couldn't get a single not a no Democrat co-sponsor for sure, and. Uh, I couldn't even get a Democrat to vote for the bill. Yeah. And they would come over to me privately and say, you know, it's actually not a bad idea, but I just get killed. I just get killed on social media. And they were terrified that they would get someone in their district running to the left of them in a primary. And which, which they would. <clears throat> which they very likely could. And, uh, you know, or if you're out to lunch, if I'm out to lunch with a, a, with friend a Democrat or, senator, yeah. you know, someone sees them and, oh, so-and-so's selling out. You better contact his office now or her office now. Yeah. You know, this is not productive. This is just just not productive for the public. You're supposed to, you know, in the, in the legislature, in the House and the Senate, what my skill level was was figuring out where the center of the Senate was in that legislative session because it changes with new people. Sure. It changes. That, that dial moves. So where is the center? That, that's where you get the most votes, and that's how you're going to actually put these things together. It's hard when people are just in their camps sniping each other. Because when I was there earlier in, 2000, say, 2003, you know, we'd go upstairs and we'd have spirited debates on the floor about policy and we were not on the same page. And then we'd come down to the Senate dining room, sit at the same table, mm -hmm. how the grandkids, you know, da, 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 you know. It used to be okay to disagree. Exactly. But no longer. You know, and I would, I would, you know, I, you know, and in, in the, when we're not in session, I, you know, some of the most rounds of golf I had were with Democrat senators. Nice. <laughs> right. Because it's not personal. It's just, we have, we might even agree on it. This is the goal, but we have different ways of getting there. Yeah. And I remember I once visited you mm -hmm. and you took me down and we had lunch. It was a couple of us. And you're right. It's a totally different experience when you go down with everybody to have lunch versus the, uh, on the floor where everybody just is getting ready to kind of battle mode. Yeah. Wage their <laughs> right. war. Right. right. And, and now with social media, it's even more ridiculous. It, it is. I mean, I, 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 I say it's uh, social media is a, it's kind of evil. In a yeah. lot of ways. I yeah. Mean, I mean, that's, that's maybe that's why there's an apple with a bite out of it on <laughs> the back of the phone. I, <laughs> I love it. I think, I've, I, think I heard somebody's father once tell me that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It goes long, way back in my family tree. A long time ago. Yeah. Someone, yeah. someone was working on a card, uh -huh. and he saw that apple phone of mine. He was like, do you know that apple has a bite out of it? <laughs> that, what does that mean to you? Who do you sign a deal with? <laughs> so tell me, in this current environment where we have political rancor everywhere. It's so volatile. It's so crazy. We have interest rates that just doubled. Mm -hmm. We got the prime back to, I think, 17 or 18 year highs, and it's going higher. We have inflation running 9%. I think the Fed is getting in front of it, but we'll see how sticky it really is. But interest rates are going to continue to move higher. People are looking at their equity portfolios to see them down, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20%. See their bond portfolios, which in the most part, most people consider bonds safe money. They're down 20 to 25%. I mean, treasuries are down 25% year to date. Real estate now is getting retraded. That's my word where, you know, you would sell them at three caps. We have some clients that sold a large multifamily portfolio for a three cap over $200 million in December of last year. Mm -hmm. I think that portfolio would be closer to a five cap today mm -hmm. where interest rates. So what are you telling folks? Like, I mean, the Northwest is in a really good place when it comes for rental properties, cash flow, but everything has to work out with the numbers, right? The mm -hmm. numbers are, the interest rates are big contributor to what prices go for. What are you seeing now in the Northwest when it comes to multifamilies, commercial real estate, uh, distribution? Like where, where and, and maybe the answer is you're not doing anything, right? So I'm really curious on what are you doing after four decades of commercial real estate, meaning you were a broker, which is phenomenal because you are you can see both the buy and sell side. So it gives you a lot of kind of clarity and what people are looking for. You own your own property, so you understand how to be an operator, now you're sitting in this spot where you're enjoying your grandchildren, you're taking some time to golf, you're sitting back. Do you think this is a ripe time to invest, A, and B, where would you invest? 
So let's go back to when I started in the business. Okay. When I started in the business, interest rates were 15 to 20%. Mm. First four buildings I sold for people, I sold for less than what they paid for them four years earlier, and they were kissing me because they got rid of their negative cash flow. So does the line always go up? No, it doesn't. Um, and so you, you, you need to make sure that you, you're careful when you, when you do buy. And obviously, you're right, the cap rates have gone up because the cost of money has gone up. Mm-hmm. Over the next year or so, I think I'd keep my eye on it. I'm not buying anything right now. So right now you're just watching. You know, I'm, yeah, because they, they, they're going to have to soften. You know, the for me, I, I didn't buy anything from, I think it was 2000, end of 2005 until 2009. Wow. So because my, it was getting ramped up pretty crazy in 2006, 7, and 8. Because people are, when they, when they, were, when they were competing and bidding up properties, you know, what I found is not fruitful to compete with stupid. <laughs> That's a bumper sticker right I, there. I, I always say never try to reason with stupid. <laughs> Don't compete with them either because if you win, you really didn't win anything. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just usually buy when everybody else is heading for the hills. And so when I teamed up with my partners that I teamed up with in 09, everybody was heading for the hills. You know, 08, mm-hmm. the 08 real estate problems and crash or setbacks, whatever you want to call it. But I knew, I knew the people with the money and they had a, they had a management facility to actually manage the properties. And so I said, well, let's put those two things together and let's go, let's go buy. And we're not, we're going to buy apartment buildings because everybody, and I, it's it's a business, obviously I know quite well, but you know, food, water, shelter. Yeah. Nobody needs a blockbuster. Yeah. By the way, they're gone. Yeah. (laughs) Or Circuit City. Right. Or, you know, want to go through the list. GameStop. No, people people do quite well in that that space, but that's not where I wanted to be because I wanted to be in a basic commodity that I know. And for me, especially with my properties, I've been through Boeing bus. I've been through 9-11. I've been through... You know, the, you know, 08 debacle. I mean, you kind of go through the laundry list, the right? The dot-com blow up. Dot-com. I've that... been through all of that. I know all I have to do is be be able to outwork my neighbor. Right. <laughs> who has the building next door because they're almost always asleep at the switch. Right. And so so we bought hmm, probably $250 million worth of apartment buildings from 09 to 18. And that's my, I'm still a partner in those properties that we bought, but... I'm not in that partnership anymore. But you stopped. So 2018 was kind of like, yeah, we're starting to see stupid bubble up. <laughs> people, uh, I mean, and people were, people were outbidding. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, resident mortgages, uh, single family homes. Right. I, I can't tell you the number of stories I heard mm. where people were paying 10, 15, 20% more. It's just crazy. And, and that's when you need to take a step back, take a deep breath, because well, let's say, because it's going to soften. It always does. It's, 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 I think right now it's, it start, it's starting to soften. But it's only the beginning of it. Great. I need a drink. <laughs> well, let's, but, but let's see. Let's, what's the worst case scenario? If it, does, if it does soften even further, what if the prices don't come down? At least if you're buying something, you'll have a bigger selection. Totally. Inventory. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, worst, that's the worst case if the prices don't come down. But I have a feeling if interest rates keep going up, the prices are going to come down. The multifamily market's been very good in the here in the Northwest, and you know it's it's one that is is also as long as there's job creation from our big job creators that we have here, then obviously people are going to need a place to live. Do you think? Uh, let's hold on to that because I think you're right. I think even though interest rates have doubled and people are are squawking about it, I mean, is six percent really bad? I don't think it's really bad. I mean. Uh, I haven't been in, I'm not as old as you. I'm working my way towards that number. But when I first bought my house. He's calling me old. <laughs> you too. Yeah, actually, right? exactly. gonna get really, I'm calling him old. Yeah. <laughs> I think rates were eight and three quarters. And then I refinance yeah. and refinance. Yeah. I, you know, 6%, I think, kind of gets the stupid out of the equation. And people that are responsible, that save that are good stewards, and, and here at Hormorth Management, we like to talk about being good stewards with our capital or our clients' capital. I think it kind of brings common sense back into the equation. Does everybody need to be leveraged to the hilt? No. So mm. I don't think 6% is as, as terrible as the world is screaming. Now, granted, it's softened and pricing is going to soften, but I kind of, I'm, I'm hoping things slow down a little bit. Uh, they will, and they are. You're right. I, I, you're actually... 
five, six percent, that's more normal. Yeah. Than this artificial, 30%. these artificial rates that we've had. Yeah. You know, and hopefully everybody listening here locked in on their home, a really low rate and uh, that you can ride out for 30 years if you wanted to. I, I hope you, I hope you ended up using Lending Co. to, to refinance. <laughs> <laughs> and if you didn't, call Teresa Kenya yeah. at Lending Co. and she can still try to help you. At what number? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll get off of that we got to get a jingle that goes <laughs> along with that number. Hold, hold on, <laughs> bing, bing, bing. With the, with the plug. Uh-huh. No, but it, 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 you know, and that's, that really is what we're going to be looking at here, I think, uh, is opportunity. There's, every time you have an upheaval, there's always some kind of opportunity. And that's what we found after the 08 issue because it, it was hard finding, you know, banks that would work with you because they were all terrified and, you know, it was, it was difficult, but that's when you really want to be in there buying because that's, that's the time that, you know, you make money on the purchase. Right. You make it on the buy. Yeah, you do. And, and uh, don't chase, uh, don't chase people that are bidding them up unrealistically. You'll be fine. Uh, but, I'm just waiting. So right now I'm just doing bridge loans on commercial property. So you're doing hard money? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, first deed of trust. I mean, the the rule rule of thumb number one is don't loan on something that you don't want to own because you might. You're going to get it. (laughs) If if something goes bad. But the idea is also is that we, you know, first deed of trust, 50, 60% loan to value. It's someone, you know, a developer that's trying to get to permit or or trying to get to perm loan. And it's it, it, in, you know, it's someone that you, you have confidence in. Yeah. That's done this before yeah. and has Experience. other collateral sometimes, yeah. you know, they're not going to walk away from the you know, 50% yeah. of their, their value. And that's, that's really the kind of the, and I never get too deep into any one loan. So there'll be a group of people that will be loaning on these properties. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Because you just don't want to, the whole, my whole thing is, is eliminate risk, eliminate risk, eliminate risk. And, and that's in my purchases of real estate. I try to, I try to, you know, marginalize all the risk as much as possible. And it's the same with uh, lending is that you, you really got to look at the borrower. You really have to look at the property. You got to see, okay, now if it really goes south at this point in time, I'm going to have to do something with it, but it's nothing that scares me because I've been in the business a long time. And from cleaning up the joint to uh, fixing it, to repurposing it, you can do it all. Bend so, on a so real estate for you is just secondhand. This is this is it. it, it, it I, it's I love this. comfortable there. I love I love the business. I yeah. really do. Yeah. You know. Did a, you say that about the, your political arena? I love the business. Well, it's almost like you, you know, loved, actually, you loved creating the 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 transaction. You love right. putting. The, you love being the mediator, the arbitrator, the master negotiator. Well, and you know, I when I became the and that's really what <laughs> it was. Wait, yeah. did we just say the mediator, the master negotiator, <laughs> the arbitrator? <laughs> Shut up. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean that, and and I did enjoy it actually. I was after I had kind of got my feet down there when I first got sworn in. <laughs> It was kind of interesting. My first 2017. No, it was two thousand. It was 1997. Okay, the my first very first, first time, time I got okay. elected, and I'm and appropriately I'm sitting in the back row where the freshmen are, and you're down on the Senate chamber floor, and there's this beautiful marble, these Tiffany chandeliers, and they take you up one at a time, and and one of our Supreme Court justices where you know swears you in, and and then everybody cheers, and I walked back to my 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 seat appropriately like i said in the back row and i looked out over this you know gray and blue hair in front of me the, the older senators and people and, i've seen on tv th- and you're 37 years yeah. old so you're like awestruck probably and I, these people i've seen on tv and i broke out in a cold sweat hmm. and i go how did i get here no am i smart enough to even be here <laughs> and after a couple of weeks i realized oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah in fact i should yeah. i should be the deputy yeah, i should be actually no, running no. this because oh. i think i might have the only idea of what to do here i'm sure some people said this about me but I, you know i just I look at some folk how did you get here i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh but you know we come from all different walks of life and that's the whole point about having a citizen legislature and that's a good thing and so it's not just one group of of people um 2022, some of us are still asking that question when it comes to politics. How'd you get here? Well, wait, <laughs> let's, some of the stuff let's, that you're going on let's nationally. Let's politics in with the uh, real estate because it's, it's something where we have several clients where they were really frustrated with some of the steps that uh, the Washington political folks did with 
rent abatement and uh, eviction moratoriums. And I mean, some of these folks that have one, two, three, not like your friend that had 70 or not like some clients that have 300 units, but you could have a mom and pop that have a 15 or 20 unit uh, building and have to rent, they have to rent or stop paying. Why? Because the local politician said, you don't have to pay any rent. So when you look at politics, it has a significant impact to most businesses. What do you think about this? In 2022, if you're owning real estate and I say, hey, I'm going to start buying four plexes or six plexes because they're starting to soften up. I can pick them up at seven or eight cap. I got a great lending partner called Lending Co. that can find me cheap money. What's their number? And so if I start to do that, but in the back of my mind, I'm a little nervous that will they come back and say, oh, we're going to do a, a moratorium on rent increases. Or, we're, I mean, what do you think? So politically speaking, those kind of scenarios have a significant impact to rental properties. They do. Every time the government sticks their nose in something like this, it perverts the market. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, when before you know, the beginning of COVID, I talked to my partners and I said, and we, and we said, okay. Or this, there, there could be a real overreaction from the government. And, of course, that's what happened. And $8 trillion later. Right. <laughs> helicopter and money, $8 trillion. I know how these politicians <laughs> think, right? And uh, I said, so we have to be prepared. Now, what if our tenants, you know, can't pay in, in, in our apartments? What are we going to do? We have to have a plan. And our plan was is to, well, we weren't going to evict people, but we were going to work with them. And let's figure this out. And we'll work with them just to make sure they're not terrified that they're going to get thrown on the street. And we were working all this out, and the governor puts on the moratorium. Yeah, great. Thank you. So, I mean, I have one tenant specifically in one of my buildings that she was in eviction before the COVID. <laughs> so she was already headed down the process. She, yeah, and she now has finally started paying two and a half years later. Wow. But here's the, you know, they, they say they lifted the, 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 the moratorium. moratorium. What they've done in Washington State is they put in place something almost as egregious where they, you actually have to take whatever they owe you. I got some tenants owe me $10,000, $15,000. And you have to divide it over six months and along with their current rent, and then you have a contract with them. And then uh, let's say they don't want to sign the contract or they fail to pay on that contract. Then you have to go to a mediator who's tenant friendly. friendly. Yep. From then they might give you a certificate that will allow you to go to eviction. What? And, and so if you don't get the certificate, what happens? You're stuck with these people. And, you know, I had, uh, you know, we were trying to get to a, a eviction on one who had no intention of paying. And I know it was leaving in the morning and coming back in the afternoon. They were working. They just decided they didn't have to pay because the right. governor said they didn't have to pay. Right. You know, and I, it's just, it's just frustrating how you just can't get to that point because the mediator was on vacation for a couple of weeks. <laughs> So you couldn't even get to that point. Wow. And then what the state did was they give you a set of paperwork and you fill out the paperwork and you put it in place and then they change the form. Don't tell you they're changing the form. Mm -hmm. And so you have to do it all over and start the whole process again. And that's by design. Right. It is by design. And that's what they're doing. And so that's why there's a lawsuit coming forward right now with a number of landlords I heard about. I mm -hmm. don't know where it is in the process because that's really a takings is what it is yeah, and without compensation. And so if you have any concern about property rights at all, uh, you, you should be concerned about this. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you also, so coming up with this election, the next election we got coming up, if the conservatives take the house again, can you see anything changing you'll be benefiting from? Well, it, in the legislature, I'd say, you I mean, right now, the reality is that the Democrats are in charge of the house and the Senate and the governor's mansion. And when the Democrats are in charge, um, it's basically the, the state employees union and the teachers union that are in charge. And nothing happens unless they say it's okay. Yeah, because they fund their campaigns. That's how this works. Mm -hmm. You know, I just watch it time and time again. They need yeah. to serve their master. They have to, or they don't get They don't money. get the funding. They don't get more money. And, you know, for Republicans, it's, it's it, you know, it's such an eclectic group of supporters that we have on the, the Republicans. There isn't one group 
you know, like labor can. There isn't one group that can come into our office and put their feet up on their desk and say, you're going to do this and this and this. Well, they can. They just, we're just going <laughs> to kick them out. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to kick them out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's such an eclectic group of supporters. I watched, I, I mean, I, I watched where the, when we were in the minority, the, the Ways and Means chair and the majority leader on the Democrat side made a, a, just something that was just kind of nominally business-friendly statement in the morning on a press conference. By noon, I watched all the labor guys walking down the hallway into the majority leader's office and walking out by 3 o'clock. They had another press conference and said the exact opposite of what they said earlier in the day. And so here's what could happen. If you actually have a, more of a, a center-right uh, majority in the House and the Senate, you still have to get past the governor, right? Yeah. It, but, but how do you do that? You, uh, the legislature uh, can actually send initiative straight to the people. And there's a lot of issues that are 60, 70 percent that the public is going to agree with that you can send, bypass the governor. Governor doesn't sign it. It goes, it goes from the legislature straight to the people, which is why it's key to have majorities, because the majority is everything. The majority decides what you could even vote on. Mm -hmm. And so that's, it's the same in D.C. It's, the majorities are incredibly important. So if there are issues no matter what they are, there'd be a wide variety of issues that you can get, you know, 50% plus one, 50% one plus one in the House and the Senate, then you can go see the, tell the public. You know, the initiative process is actually, a lot of people don't like it, especially legislators, a lot of them don't like it. Well, they don't like it because they're not in control. Their constituency or who, who's giving them capital doesn't get what they want. That's why I like them. I like them because, I mean, I love the $30 tab. It, it's passed I don't know how many times since I've lived <laughs> yeah. in this state. Uh -oh. I, mo I moved here in 1995. I, I, I don't care what you think about Tim Iman, but the $30 tab, I think, has passed three times, I think. And yet we don't have a $30 tab. I know. I, know. I, I love this. I love well, the will of the people get done until the governor or whoever's in charge says no. It's just crazy. Well, here's here's how that works is that, and honestly, it, the initiative process, I think, is a good thing. And it's more of a Western states notion. Yeah. You go to East East Coast and that it's not really a, a thing like it is here. Yeah. In Chicago, we don't do that. Where I grew up, no. instead, we had people that, that were dead but voted twice. So it, that's a different thing in Chicago. <laughs> But they're, they're loyal voters. That's the good thing, I guess. And, uh, yeah, the initiative process is one that it really is the public's opportunity to tell the legislatures, the legislators that you did something you shouldn't have done or you didn't do something you should have done. Mm -hmm. And it's a way for them to talk directly to them. The good news about Washington State versus, say, Colorado is that you cannot amend a constitution by initiative. Mm. But it takes two-thirds in both bodies to um, amend the constitution in the first two years. Then it's just a simple majority. See, that's how it changes. Oh. So after it's only safe for a couple of years. And then once you have the majority, right. you can change it. But in Colorado, uh, you can change the constitution. And oftentimes initiatives are maybe the first draft of a five-draft bill. <laughs> You know, because there's all these unintended consequences. Every sure. time you drop a piece of legislation, there's unintended consequences that you really didn't even think about. Yeah. And to your point, the $30, how about roads? How about, I mean, I get it, right? It, I, and I, most I, of it wasn't going to roads. That's how they That's how they passed. That's because, how, correct. Because it was sold to us as going to roads. Right. But, but I get the concept that there's a lot of unintended consequences. What I don't like is that the politicians aren't listening to what we're telling them. Right. If something passes... They should take heed. Okay, they're not happy about it. Let's see if we can tell them why we can't do it or how we can change it. But I, I don't get that sense. Once, well, no, once again, it's like I feel like there's no moderation. I mean, even when President Bill Clinton was in office and he had to deal with um, Newt Gingrich and, and company and mm -hmm. they had the majority and he was it and they were bickering, they still were able to pass you know, laws that benefited some people instead. Oh, we just, Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Yeah, right. Right, that's another good example. Now we got, it's just, you know, bombs away. Just slugfest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. And, you know, and it, it, you go through these, 
these things happen like this every once in a while. And then hopefully we'll get to a point where people can kind of come back together again and figure so, out what's sorry. in the best interest of the country. So you think that we can come back to yeah, some what has to happen moderate to happen. position? Yeah, I, I, I think it's possible. I really do. But, I, you know, I'm a glass half full guy. I always have been, always will be. That's um, why you like real estate. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And uh, and why, you know, I, just, I, I, I actually enjoyed my time in politics. I wouldn't trade any of it in. I really wouldn't. I mean, I've met so many wonderful people. I was in the right place at the right time to do something good. I mean, I've, I've, I've recruited, I don't know, dozens, if not hundreds of candidates over the years to run for public office. And I just say, look, I said, the only reason to run for public office is to be in the right place at the right time to do something good for your community. If you want to see your name in the paper, I guarantee you to be surrounded by words you don't like. <laughs> and so that's not a reason to do this. So my freshman year in the Senate, people ask, well, why would you put up with all this garbage to get elected and all the work it takes. My freshman year in the Senate, I sponsored uh, the two strikes throughout sex crimes against children that put rapists and molesters away forever after their second strike. Mm -hmm. Passed it into law. That was my bill. And I wanted to do a one strike, but I realized, okay, someone could get falsely accused and convicted once, but that kind of crime twice? No way. It passed, and I and later with a with a large support from both sides yes yes and and governor Locke uh, signed it mm -hmm. into law it was a few years later and there was someone that had been con you know caught and then convicted and they and I heard listening on the radio but he's probably going to go away forever because of this two strikes this nice. two strikes and now there's a couple hundred that are never going to hurt another in Washington State, never going to hurt another child again. That's awesome. Which is this, awesome. This yeah. is why you run for public office. Right. Yeah. The good that this you the, can do. That's it. That's the only reason to do it. There's no other reason. I mean, there's, it's not, not the money because there's no money in it. I didn't even know what I got paid as a senator. I got elected, actually. I didn't really Serious? know. No, you, I didn't. You ran, you won, and you didn't know that you were going to make peanuts? I wasn't doing it for the money. You weren't doing it for the money. But I always got the guy from my district from North Bend calling me up. You're only doing it for the money. You know, he called me up and yell at me. And I said, no, sir, I'm going to pay more in taxes this year. And I make us a senator. Yeah, <laughs> How yes. about that? Yeah, the conversation kind of ends at that point. At that point, he eggs <laughs> up. I love the bill on the offenders. Give us an example of your biggest accomplishments. You know, the, the two strikes out was one that, that really stuck with me. I also did, we had another one, which was the Mary Johnson Act, where it was the the first national ignition interlock law for chronic DUI offenders. Right by our home, it was my second year in the Senate, and you could hear, as a warm summer night, and you can hear this crash and ambulances in the distance, maybe a few blocks away, and it's where um, Keith Johnson was, was walking with it hand-in-hand hand with his wife, Mary. A car, a minivan came and basically ripped her out of his hand, and she ended up almost a block away, and the minivan took off. They caught up with this woman in the QOC parking lot. She blew something like a 3-2. Wow. wow. And uh, That's four times Mary, the legal limit. Tragic. And she's, she's, you know, dead, Mary. And this woman, this was her fifth or sixth DUI, and she never served a day in jail because she had a good lawyer. So I started researching it, and I realized that, you know, understanding something about alcoholism, what you really have with a chronic alcoholic, you just have to separate them from the car. That's what you have to do. And that's what ignition interlock does. There were studies in Canada and Europe to where it reduced the recidivism rate. And um, so I sponsored this bill and actually got it through the legislature and received a finalist award from Mothers Against Drunk Drivers for, for sponsoring this bill. It's, I'm sure it's saved thousands of lives. You know, I was really known more for that stuff in the beginning until I became chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. And then when you start holding the purse rings, people get a little upset. Well, it was, uh, <laughs> you know. The budget. <laughs> yeah. Well, I became chairman of the Senate Ways and Means Committee during the largest dollar deficit in Washington state history. It was, I had a one-vote Republican majority, a six, seven-vote Democrat majority in the House and a Democrat governor. And I had three members, kind of squishier members of my caucus that were willing to join with the Democrats and raise taxes and throw me under the bus. What I did is before session started, I, I gave a press conference and I just said, look, we have a very big problem here, budget problem, because we spent too much money in the previous budgets and the economy's taken downturn and people are out of work. I said, um, I'm not going to raise taxes because I believe it will harm the economy and put people out of work. 
I'm going to do everything I can to protect the most vulnerable people in our society. I said, if you think about people in nursing homes, think about the mentally ill, think about the development disabled, you know, and we need to be there to help these folks. These are the, some of the most vulnerable in our society. And you could be fiscally conservative and still have a social conscience. This is what I said in the press conference. Nobody thought it could be done. My own ways and means. I think the book mentions that also. Yeah, my nonpartisan ways and means staff didn't think, oh, there's, there's no way. My chief of staff said, boy, I hope, yeah, right after I walked off the stage of the, of the press conference, he says, oh, Senator, I hope you don't have any hopes that any of that stuff's going to pass. Wow. It's my chief of staff. He's been down there a long time, right? Nonpartisan chief of staff. And so they, it kind of, like for about a week, it was kind of going that way where they they just didn't really believe we could do this. And so I had to have a series of bills because I, I had a, all these bills which would change previous laws just to make my budget work. Right. And I, and so I, after about a week and a half of them not really buying it, and I realized they were putting together a tax increase budget kind of behind my back because they figured that's where I was going to end up. Mm-hmm. And I just sat my whole staff down. I had 15 budget analysts and lawyers that worked for me as nonpartisan guys and guys and gals. And I just said, now, look, I know you're all a bunch of NPR listening liberals. <laughs> but down hard. I guess this is what my grandma used to say. This is truth. This is truth talk. <laughs> yeah. Truth, truth talk taking yeah. place. But, but I said, you've been around here long enough to where I think you're all sufficiently cynical enough about this process to help me. And they kind of all kind of, well, of heads. So I, so I would take these, some of these bills one at a time and I would go out. And so before session started, I went around the state and, and, and I met in hometowns with moderate Democrat senators and some of my squishier members of my caucus. And, uh, and I just said, look, I don't have any more money to spend than anybody else. But, I, you know, I've got, I've got $25 billion that I'm going to spend here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to know from you what is important to you and your district and whatever that is, if it fits within my framework, how can I help you be successful? And this is what I took from the commercial real estate. How can I help? Yeah. So it didn't matter if they were Republican or Democrat. And so the, the three squishy Republicans that I had in my caucus that were willing to vote. Does know, anybody since, else want to know what squishy is? The, well, uh, the technical just, definition? We, we, yeah, we call them flip-floppers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there yeah. We go. Squishy, ah, flip-floppers, yeah. Yeah. spineless, no bags, right. either go right. with the wind. And I, I, I never put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving them a bunch <laughs> of... Squishy <laughs> sounds lovable. <laughs> oh, so, so I would... Yeah, and so what I, what, the way I did this was... Um, is I, you know, I really sat down with, especially some of the moderate Democrats, of which I, there aren't too many left down there now, but the moderate Democrats, and I just, I said, look, how can I help you be successful within this framework? I'm not going to violate, I'm not raising taxes, and I'm going to protect the vulnerable. And how, you know, will you help me? And I asked, will you help me? I ended up with four of the Democrat senators joining me and voting on these, this legislation and the budget, and once then, my three softer, let's say softer Republicans, realized the train was leaving. They weren't on board. And so they're going to jump they, on. Oh, they came on board. Because I, I wasn't even, at that point, wasn't even talking to them because I knew what they were thinking. They thought that they were the key vote. Right. And they were going to get whatever they, the they wanted. And so I made them less relevant. Right. Uh, and, and brought in these moderate Democrats. And once we did that, instead of making the Senate Republicans, I made it the Senate. Mm. I knew we weren't going to lose. I knew we weren't going to lose. And they were, no, nobody really done that because in history, every time there'd been a big deficit, it was always, well, we have to, we have to be reasonable here. It has to be half cuts and half tax increases. You know, it's not a good, it's not, it's, it's not ever cut. Yeah. You know, and, and I, and I said in a press conference, I said, you know, this Olympia cut thing, what is this Olympia cut? This Olympia cut thing is, is that, uh, you know, my, 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 my 10-year-old daughter comes to me and says, Daddy, I want a $100 a week allowance. I go, oh, wow. I said, no, no, honey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a $5 a week allowance. And then, you know, she runs around the neighborhood telling everybody I cut her budget by 95%. <laughs> she was never going to get that in the first place. So that's what they do. They fantasize about whatever they're going to get. And then if they don't get that level, even though it's more than what they got before, they call it a cut. Right. That's an Olympia cut. Yeah. Even if it's an increase over the previous year. 
and they didn't get what it's they wanted. It's almost always an increase. So if it's, it's and, a cut. That's right. That's the game. And so, so I, in the press conference, I said, yeah, so I'm not playing the Olympic cut thing. And that even got in the newspaper, you know, Gary Locke, <laughs> Gary Locke was getting so much pressure because he came out with a, uh, a budget that was a, just a horrible budget. He was cutting everything he could to get us to recoil and say, oh, okay, I guess we're going to have to raise taxes. So when I saw the governor's budget and he was cutting, he cut, you know, development disabled, he cut 50 million from the mentally ill and on and on and on. Yeah, it was ugly. But I went into caucus and I told all my caucus members, the Republicans, I said, don't any of you say anything negative about his budget. I'm going to go out and praise it. And here's what I'm going to say. I said, I'm going to go out, Governor, boy, I think you're 100% right and 100% right that, you're, uh, that we, we really shouldn't be raising taxes. I said, but we should also protect the vulnerable. And, uh, you know, so some of the odds and ends you have in your budget, we're, we'll work on that together. <laughs> so now he's stuck in the corner like Velcro. Right. And so he was getting so much pressure, so much pressure from the left that he's not raising taxes. He started talking about sin taxes. So we, we got to raise sin taxes, but there's no definition. Is that the in, first time that that term came up? No. Well, in, I mean, nationally, that's that, been around they, they for did. a long time. Okay. But there's no definition of what that is. And so the first thing he came out with was, you know, he was going to have a 10 cent a can pop tax. So, Sugar. So I said, yeah, I said, so my quote in the paper was, you know, Governor, I don't, yeah, I said we're not raising taxes. I said, but uh, I said, I don't consider my kids sinners if they actually have Coca-Cola. Uh, yeah, have a pop. Have a soda. And so he kept talking about sin taxes. And so finally, my my quote to get him to stop talking about this, the sin taxes was, Governor, why don't you why don't you just tax original sin? It's at least as a broad-based tax. <laughs> and now it's over. We're not gonna do that. The uh, only gift it has a quick wit is smart ass. Just try to put it in a good use. I'm, I'm sticking to my master negotiator. <laughs> he gets the title. You know what? You're right. He gets the title. So I had a lot more fun than I was supposed to have, especially when, you know, I had the SEIU labor union that was running TV ads in my district and trying to bludgeon me. And they didn't realize I never cared if I got reelected, which is what the secret to my success. The worst case scenario for me is I go back to my wonderful life. And so that makes you dangerous because they can't really control you. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say this is what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to do. And I even had 500 of them marching around, went dressed in purple with bullhorns, marching around my office in Olympia, singing to the tune of Frere Jaca. <laughs> Dino Rossi, Dino Rossi, cheap and mean, cheap, cheap and mean. <laughs> and so I'm on, the, I'm on the second floor of the, the, the Sherberg building as they're serenading me. And <laughs> I music to your ears. I, I opened up the windows and as they is as they sang, I was moving my arms like like I was like conducting an, an orchestra. An orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of like, okay, we can't do anything with this guy, right, right. <laughs> and, which it. is right. And, uh, and you know, because I was the one that was restoring the funding for the mentally ill and development disabled and everybody else that needed help and people in nursing homes. And, uh, and SU just wanted to raise. And I said, well, no, we can't afford it. We're broke. And so is everybody we know. So this is not the year. But they just kept kept going and kept going until finally, at that point, I think they realized that we're not getting a raise, and I'm tired of serenading. And this I'm not guy. really, I'm not really that stubborn, but you know, but ask my wife. I mean, yeah, she yeah. Thinks, <laughs> you're practical, right? And and you're, it was it. you own your own business. You right. can't squeeze water out of a rock. You can't. And right. and I and it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Um, you know, my you know, because I realized, and I also called their bluff in the Seattle Times too, because I realized what they were doing. They were cutting the mentally ill and all the rest so they could give raises to state employees. I just, my quote in the Seattle Times was, and because we, you know, we had a lot of unemployment at that point in time. And I just said, well, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me to be raising taxes on people who are unemployed to be giving people who still have jobs raises. And it's just done. Cut them off at the knees. Done. So it, it's just, a, I, I had a lot more fun than I was supposed to have. Yeah, you, you sounded like you had your fair share. It kind of sounds like you're having a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me this. Unemployment is always a politician's worst nightmare, right? Because mm -hmm. you get unhappy voters that put you in the office. I'm looking at what we're staring at, right? So we got high inflation, the Federal Reserve saying we're going to dampen this thing down. Clearly, we have the stock market 
which is different. Most people think of the stock market being down the economy. They're totally two different instruments. Stock market is instant. The stock market will tell you you're about to crash in a wall nine months before we crash in the wall, right? So for folks that really understand how the markets work, they give you a reading in a real-time scenario. The economy has a lag effect to it. So the stock market is screaming danger. It went down 20, 30%. People are nervous, but yet unemployment is still incredibly low. And I'm looking at this current situation. I'm seeing prices come down for stocks. I'm seeing bond uh, interest rates go up, which cause bond prices to come down. I see commodity prices fall in, collapse in some of them. I see energy prices. So I'm I'm assuming inflation is going to start to, you know, recede. Uh, I see the unemployment number tick up because the participation rate for the first time in six, seven years actually increased. But yet I keep thinking to myself, even if we go into a recession, I'm not sure how deep it can be because we just don't have enough workers willing to work. What do you think of that? We, we clearly don't have enough workers willing to work. What these people were doing, you know, they pre-COVID. Right. And where are they now? Yeah. And they haven't come back. And I was like, how are you paying your bills? I'm not sure how that's working. I'm not sure how that, because you look at finding people to work has been a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And uh, no matter what industry you're in. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's been a pretty frustrating thing for most business owners. So you don't have the answer. I do not. Oh, I was, I was hoping I was, I was going to add to his list, maybe but call you, him the great Swami because I'm looking for that answer. But if you need to nego- negotiate something, I can take care of that for you. He's the master. I love it. So that's funny. let's, let's bring this home and okay. tell us, uh, commercial real estate. So you're saying you're still sitting on the sidelines waiting for opportunity. Yeah, it'll come. It always does. And uh, when when everybody else is heading for the hills, that's when you need to get involved. But I'm one who just doesn't like selling what I buy either. I just like so you like to hold your stuff. Yeah, and and have large equity because I like to sleep at night. Mm. Uh, I don't just refinance and pull money out, and I just don't do that. And um, so I like having. I rather. You know, it's, it allows me to do what I want to do. Yeah, allows you to golf and enjoy yourself and your right. grandchildren, and right. and not stressed about it. Right, and that's I like sleeping at night. We're gonna end a little bit on a positive, fun note. So, Go top ahead. five golf courses you've ever played? Hmm. I uh, played Wingfoot, uh, Bethpage Black. I love Bandon. I love Sahali, uh, and Bandon. Yeah, um, those are great golf so courses. That's four. Boy, a fifth one. Uh, where else? I can't think of a fifth one, but those are kind of my top those ones. Those are some good ones. How'd you get on Wingfoot? Who'd you know? I was. Don't a... tell him. Don't tell him. <laughs> you got him. another? Oh, no, wait, wait. Don't Dang, tell him. That's what he's going for. <laughs> I want to move my six degrees of separation down to two if you can help. Uh, he was a member. <laughs> Enough said. Nice. Nice. Well, hey, I want to really thank you for taking the time coming in, sharing all these pearls of wisdom. Um, there's a lot out there and I think real estate is now starting to soften up. Mm -hmm. So I think this is timely. And I think for the folks that uh, are having an idea uh, that potentially might've bought real estate and paid too much might be leverage. I want to give them some encouragement to hang in there, Mm -hmm. reduce the leverage. Rent's going to continue to move forward. It's a good investment for folks that are thinking about where do we put our capital Real estate's still not a bad place. You just got to make sure it's the leverage is working and we get got to know what we own. And that's one of the things I love. At the end of the day, I tell everybody kind of the way we manage equities, we know what we own. With real estate, you got to know what you own. So I appreciate you taking the time. It's an honor to have you come in and sit with us and tell your stories. Oh, well, loved it. Thank you. Loved it. Uh, this has been fun. <laughs> Appreciate the invitation. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we will have you back. Okay. Absolutely. Anytime. We'll have you back, especially after the November election, to kind of tell us what do we do now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I'm not quite sure the state and the Fed and the national level, I think it's going to look differently. Or at least I'm hoping it looks differently. And it's going to be a new era of navigating it. We will see if everybody gets involved. Nice. Right? That's the secret. Yeah. Thank you, Dino. Thank Thank you, you, Dino. Thank you.